I'm going to start with Psalm 2, which you can find on page 536, verses 1 to 12. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them with his wrath, terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Our second reading comes from 1 Samuel, chapter 18, reading verses 1 to 13. You can find that on page 286. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine... The women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul and with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me only with thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David. Because the Lord was with David, but he had departed from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over, te- over a thousand men, and David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaign campaigns. Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter Merab. 
I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles for the, of the Lord. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. But David said to Saul, Who am I, and what is my family or my clan in Israel, that I should become the king's son-in-law? So when the time came for Merab, Saul's daughter, to be given to David, he was give, she was given in marriage to Adriel of Meholah. <clears throat> now Saul's daughter, Michal, was in love with David. And when they told Saul about it, he was pleased. I will give her to him, he thought, so that she may be a snare to him, and so that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. So Saul said to David, now you have a second opportunity to become my son-in-law. Then Saul ordered his attendants, speak to David privately and say, look, the king likes you, and his attendants all love you. Now become his son-in-law. They repeated these words to David, but David said, Do you think it is a small matter to become the king's son-in-law? I'm only a poor man and little known. When Saul's servants told him what David had said, Saul replied, Say to David, The king wants no other price for the bride than a hundred Philistine foreskins to take revenge on his enemies. Saul's plan was to have David fall by the hand of the Philistines. When the attendants told David these things, he was pleased to become the king's son-in-law. So before the allotted time elapsed, David took his men with him and went out and killed 200 Philistines and brought back their foreskins. They counted out the full number to the king so that David might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him his daughter, Michal, in marriage. When Saul realised that the Lord was with David and his daughter, Michal, loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy for the rest of his days. The Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle, and as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers, and his name became well known. Well, good morning, everyone, and thank you for having me. Uh, it's a great uh, privilege to be here and to be opening God's Word with you. And I'm excited to be here, uh, and particularly to be looking at this passage uh, in 1 Samuel 18 with you. Uh, because I think that this passage has a huge amount to say to us this morning, uh, and particularly a huge amount to say to us uh, in the climate that we are living in as Christians right at the moment. Because I feel like the heat is rising. My wife uh, at the moment is reading the Bible with a young woman uh, connected with our church through an Alpha course. Uh, this young lady has no background in Christianity, uh, didn't know any Christians before a year ago, had never read the Bible. Uh, but she has been introduced to the person of Jesus, uh, and she's on board with Jesus, she's on board with his teaching, she's on board with the morality, but there's one thing that is holding her back, and it's that she knows that if she commits to Jesus, that she is going to be ostracized for her faith. And so right at the moment, she is counting the cost. What will it mean for her family, her work friends? In fact, she said to Kate the other day, if I become a Christian, you'll need to help me find a way to come out of the closet to my family. That's an incredible comment for her to make. But the question is, why is she feeling this pressure? 
Well, I think the reason is that there is a conversation going on right at the moment that we're in the middle of, a renegotiation about where Christians fit in society. And it's a conversation that is happening at the political level and at the level of the media and at the legal level. And it's been building for several years now, but the latest flashpoint is around the Israel Folau case. Now, I suspect that even saying his name will arouse a whole stack of different reactions in this room, and that is totally fine. It's a complex situation with complex issues, with different nuances, uh, but what we can't do is ignore talking about this because we need to stay engaged to talk to each other and above all, figure out what it means for us as Christians, as people who live in this society, because this is an important cultural moment. Now, I know that uh, Matt uh, has already preached on this uh, a few weeks back, uh, called A Challenging Post in the Galatians series. So if you want to go back and hear more about this in depth, uh, you can track that back on the church's website. Uh, But I just want to jump into it for just a minute or two, uh, just because I think it does have serious implications uh, for the way that we're living. For those who haven't been able to follow along, Israel Folau is probably Australia's best rugby player, one of the best in the world, but he recently posted on Twitter a meme, a picture that had a list of sins, including homosexuality, and he basically said that if you live like this, you are going to hell unless you repent. There was outrage in the media, there was outrage in society at large, and Rugby Australia sacked him. Now, when we're talking about these issues, we need to distinguish between manner and content. And so we can talk about his manner, whether this was the right way to go about it, whether this was the right platform to be raising these issues and the way that he did it. But what we're interested in this morning is the content of the post, because actually that's what most of the outrage is against. Because here is the reality. What Israel posted is doctrinally correct. If you live your life submitting to your own authority and not God's, then God will judge. You will be found guilty because we are all guilty and hell is the punishment. This is orthodox Christian doctrine. But more than that, and more importantly, this is the context that makes sense of the gospel. Because without it, the gospel is utterly incomprehensible. Because what is the gospel? What is the good news? The good news is that God desires no one to face hell. In fact, God went to the most incredible lengths to ensure that no one has to. He sent his one and only son into this world to take the judgment on his shoulders, to experience hell himself in order that we might not have to, that we can be saved. Now, I've felt the weight of this situation for the last few months, uh, and I've agonized over this a little bit, mostly because of my job. You see, my work with university students means that most of the students I work with have worked incredibly hard to be where they are. They are pursuing their studies so that they can get good jobs, which allow them to contribute to society, provide security for their families, and which allow them to flourish. These are all good things. 
But the gospel I am teaching them, the gospel that is in the Bible, the gospel that I'm motivating them to speak to their friends, family, and work colleagues, is the very gospel that will cause them to have their job contracts ripped up for violating the company's code of conduct, that will render their university degrees useless, that will cause them to be social pariahs, which will lead to financial insecurity, all sorts of things. And it's the same here this morning. In a funny sense, I'm not on the front lines. You are on the front lines. Which means that we need to be sure, I need to be sure, the uni students need to be sure, you need to be sure that it is worth it. That the promise of the gospel, this good news, so far outweighs the persecution that might come that you will not just accept it, but that you will welcome it because of who Jesus is, who the Lord's anointed is. That you will love Jesus so much and what he has done that you will not just stand, but you will overflow in love and joy for what he has done. So is it worth it? Is the coming persecution worth it and how do we survive? Well, 1 Samuel 18 speaks directly to this. And so we're going to turn to this in just a moment. Before I do this, these are big issues, uh, so I want to pray for us uh, before we jump into it. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not left us uh, here in the chaos of this world, but that you have sent your son Jesus to die on a cross, to save us, to rescue us. Father, as we jump into 1 Samuel 18, we thank you that it is a word that is relevant for today. Uh, And we pray that you would be using it to encourage us, uh, to rebuke us when is needed, uh, but to be spurring us on to live lives that point always to you. And Father, this morning we pray uh, that you would lift our eyes and that we would see Jesus, that we would see your Son, and that our hearts would be filled with joy and love because of it. And we pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. Well, Psalm 2 begins like this. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Why do we begin here? Well, because Psalm 2 is in many ways a poetic reflection on both David's rise in general, but specifically our story here in 1 Samuel 18. Psalm 2 asks, why do the nations rage? And 1 Samuel 18 gives a specific example of this, of Saul, the king, the ruler of Israel, raging against the Lord's anointed. If you have your Bibles, it'd be great if you could have them open to 1 Samuel 18. Uh, And have a look at verse 8 with me. David has come back from another victory and is met with a song from the people. The women come out, they danced, they sang, and they said, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. And then we read this, Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The problem that's introduced into the narrative, the problem that Saul faces, is a threat to his political authority and power. 
because Saul is the king of Israel. And in previous chapters, we have traced his rise, and now we have begun to see his fall. This is a man who has just lost 30 news polls in a row and knows that the knives are being sharpened behind his back. But not without good reason. Because Saul is facing a great existential threat. Now, with all these sort of threats, there's a symptom and there's a cause. The symptom here is a worldly threat. At this point in Israel's history, they are in grave peril. And the great threat is the nation of Philistine. Philistine is a mid-level power in the world, but they are wedged geographically between the sea and Israel. Their only room for growth is to push out into Israel's territory, who are sitting on a particularly fertile and resource-rich bit of land. It's probably about the equivalent of Indonesia eyeing off Australia, if Australia doesn't, didn't have the world's superpower backing it up. That's about the level of threat that we are talking about. That's the symptom, that's the worldly threat. But actually there is an underlying cause. There is a spiritual threat here. And that is that Saul has rejected God. And so God has withdrawn his support. The God who raised Saul up has announced that Saul will now be torn down. And in 1 Samuel 15, having disobeyed God, Samuel the prophet announces that God has rejected him. And so when Saul hears the women sing, Saul struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands, he flies into a rage. In fact, he reacts in the same way that governments always act when they are under threat. He lashes out and does all he humanly can to consolidate and retain power. And verses 10 to 27 document four attempts to neutralize the threat to his power and authority. The first is an outright act of violence, verses 10 and 11, where he attempts to spear David to death. And then the next three, from verses 12 to 27, Saul attempts to use every resource possible, military, political, he even has domestic conspiracies to try and eliminate David. Now, it's not clear at the beginning of this narrative whether Saul realizes that David is the Lord's anointed, but by the time we get to the end of the chapter, we find out that it is clear to Saul. As each of Saul's plots comes to nothing, and instead David grows in stature and power, Saul knows that his suspicions were correct. In verse 28, we read, When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Micah loved him, Saul became still more afraid of him. And then we read these terrible words, And he remained his enemy the rest of his days. This was Saul's reaction to the Lord's anointed. But it is also the way that the world reacts to the Lord's anointed. Here's the point that I think is being made here. When the power and authority of the world is challenged by the Lord's anointed, the, Lord, the world will rage and doing everything in its power to retain power and put down the threat. The nations rage against the Lord's anointed. 
Now, this is something that as Christians, uh, we often lose sight of a little bit. Because I think when we think of persecution, we can often think about it on the personal, relational scale. But the nuance in Psalm 2 and 1 Samuel 18, the nuance that, that these passages brings out is that actually persecution, when it happens, is most likely going to come on the macro scale. That is, it's going to come from the state. It's going to come from the media. It's going to come from big corporations. And we need to be prepared for that. And we need to expect significant pushback from those institutions that are seeking to shape the society that we are living in. Why? Because Jesus challenges the power and authority of this world. The world says that you are your own God and that you need to act in accordance with who you are to be true to yourself. What is immoral is when you deny yourself something that you want. That's why I take it that sexuality seems to be the flashpoint issue at the moment. That's why there's so much heat around it. But the Bible says that we are not God, we are not the Lord, and so we need to submit to the Lord's anointed and to conform our lives to Him because only in doing that can we find fulfillment and flourishing. These are two radically opposed ways of seeing the world. And when you try and bring them together, there is one almighty clash that we are in the middle of right at the moment. And so if the Israel Folau situation tells us anything, I think this is it, that what we already kind of knew to be true is official, and that is that we are living in a post-Christian world, and that our vision for the world and for human flourishing is not just in the minority, it is a view to be silenced and condemned. And if 1 Samuel 18 tells us anything, It is that we should not be surprised by this, because this is the way that the nations have always responded to the Lord's anointed. If for a time our society was sympathetic to Christianity, then we need to remember that globally and historically that is an exception, not a rule. The nations rage, and the nations rage against the Lord's anointed. So where does this leave us? If persecution is coming, how will we hold up? How do we prepare for it? And what happens when it hits? Well, the answer in this passage comes when we look at the Lord's anointed. Because here's the thing with persecution and pain. You can put up with pain if there is a greater reality which your immediate pain is pushing you towards. You can put up with pain if there is a greater reality going on behind it. Let me give you an example of this. I played footy until I was 25. Every day I would get up over summer and I would run. I would do a pre-season. I would put myself through pain. Why would I do that? Because there was a greater reality that was driving me. The footy season, the ability to win games of footy. Now, guess what happened when I stopped playing footy? I couldn't run. I'd go for a run, I'd run about a kilometre and then I'd just give up because the pain was too much because there was no greater reality beyond that that was pushing me to go through it. Now that's a bit of a trite example. Maybe a more profound one is the fact that I have a five-week-old daughter and everything around that is about pain but a greater reality that you are heading towards. 
But we have seen the reality of pain and persecution in this life. The nations will rage, it will cost, but the question we need to ask is this, is the greater reality worth it? And 1 Samuel 18 gives us a picture of this greater reality because David in this story is the greater reality because David is the Lord's anointed. And so there are three things that I want us to notice about David that help us understand his role as the Lord's anointed. The first is this, David is dressed as the Lord's anointed. David is dressed as the Lord's anointed. Did you notice that as we went through? Look at verse four with me. There's a beautiful little detail in the text. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Who is Jonathan? Well, Jonathan is Saul's eldest son, and so he's the heir to the throne. In the human eyes, he is the next king, the Lord's anointed one waiting to take his throne. And so he is dressed as the Lord's anointed. But verse 4 tells us that Jonathan strips himself of all the trappings of his station, all the markers of, the, of royalty, all the things that give him power and authority, and he gives them to David which means that when David goes out and is successful against the enemies of God, he does so dressed as the Lord's anointed one. Secondly, David acts in the way that the Lord's anointed should act. He dresses like the Lord's anointed and now he acts in the way that the Lord's anointed should act. And what should the Lord's anointed do? He should defeat the enemies of God. The great existential threat, the symptom is Philistine and David, having beaten Goliath, goes on to be wildly successful in everything that he does. Nothing can stand against him because he is the Lord's anointed and he defeats the enemies of Israel. He dresses like it, he acts, and thirdly, David then is exalted as the Lord's anointed. The last verse summarizes the impact of David in Israel. Look at verse 30 with me. The Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle, and as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers, and his name became well known. His name, that is, was exalted. It was highly esteemed. And so we have David dressed as the Lord's anointed, who goes out and fights the enemies of God and of God's people. And in all that he does, he is successful so that his name is esteemed, is exalted. And so as we look at David, as we look at the Lord's anointed, why do we stand up under persecution? Well, because in David, we see Jesus. Do you know what the word Christ means? The word Christ means the anointed one. David in this story is pointing us to Jesus who is the Christ. And you know what? When Jesus went to the cross, he also was dressed as the Lord's anointed. The soldiers, in order to mock him, had taken a bunch of thorns and fashioned them into a crown. Then they brought him a royal robe and wrapped it around his shoulders saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And then Pontius Pilate had an inscription put on the cross above him saying, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. 
And why does Jesus let this happen? Why does he allow the powers of this world to mock and ridicule, to torture and execute him? Well, because he has come to do what the Lord's anointed does. He has come to defeat the great existential threat that faces humanity. And what is the threat? The threat is that we have rejected the Lord's anointed. And as with these things, there is a symptom and there is a cause. The symptom is that we have rejected the God, the creator and sustainer of this world. We have rejected the one who has embedded this world with a moral order such that it leads to human flourishing. But we have rejected that. We have tried to live our lives according to our own vision for reality. And so we are living in a society, in a world that is crumbling. That's the symptom. That's the worldly threat. But there is a greater underlying cause, a spiritual threat. Because God is a God of justice. And it means that all those who have contributed to the evil in this world will be held to account. All who have not loved the way that God wants us to love. All who seek power and authority for themselves and try and elevate themselves. They will all be found guilty and the punishment is hell. This is the core of humanity's problem. This is the problem that our society faces, whether they realize it or not. And this is our problem. And this is the threat that we can't work out on our own. And this is also the threat that David couldn't work out. But this is the gospel. This is the greater reality. David was pointing to someone who was greater. And Jesus has come not to judge, but to save. And in the very act of dying, Jesus was saving us from the greatest existential threat that we face. The threat of our own rage against the anointed. Because it's what the anointed does. He saves us. And we cannot find this salvation, this freedom, this liberation anywhere else. We cannot find this salvation in setting ourselves up as Lord. It can only come by embracing Jesus. This is the God we believe in. This is the Jesus that we proclaim. The Lord's anointed who has won the battle against the enemies of God. And so we return to that question. Is it worth it? When persecution comes, when suffering comes, does this great reality allow us to push through the pain? Well, in 1 Samuel 18, it certainly does for Jonathan. Actually, Psalm 2 says, Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. It is Jonathan in this passage who kisses the son because Jonathan recognizes the Lord's anointed and recognizes that this Lord has not come to judge but to save. And so Jonathan's heart is filled with love and joy. Read with me in verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. Verse 3, and Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him. We get this, this phrase repeated, he loved him as himself. You see, this greater reality has so gripped Jonathan that he immediately and joyfully pledges his whole life to his king. 
Because who the Lord's anointed is and what he has done for his people far outweighs any human power and authority, any job that Jonathan could possibly have or want. To serve the Lord's anointed is everything. And so Jonathan immediately, what does he do? He abdicates the throne. He gives up his job. He gives up absolutely everything that he has. He even takes off his robe, his armor, and gives it to David. He gives his life and dedicates it to his king. And you know what, brothers and sisters, the same must be true for us, but more so because we see through David to Jesus. When we face persecution, when the world rages against the the Lord's anointed, we should not tremble. Instead, we should kiss the sun. It should force us to look to Jesus. And when we look, we find a king who has rescued his people, rescued us. And so our hearts should be filled with love and joy. And so we will be able to give up whatever we need to give up. Because we have already have everything in our king. Do you know that if it's true that we are going to be facing more persecution in the coming years, and I reckon that's probably true, then actually this is going to be a great thing for the church. Because it is going to force us to come back again and again with more and more urgency to the greater reality of the gospel, to see if it's worth it. And as we do this, it's going to cause us to run to Jesus for refuge again and again. And as we do this, as we look to Jesus, as we see, as we remember what he has done for us, as we realize the impact that that has on our lives, we're going to, it's going to cause us to love Jesus more and more. And as we love Jesus more and more, as we knit our souls with him, this love will overflow to those around us. And we will not be able to do anything but tell people about what our Lord and Saviour has done for them. You know, ultimately, I think that the Izzy Falau saga, what we should take from it, is that is a call to mission for this church. Because our world is suffering under a great existential threat, which has a symptom which we can see in our world, but whose underlying cause is far more profound. But Jesus has come to save us from this threat. And as the nations rage, as we face opposition from the media, the state, our workplaces, the great news is that we will turn ever more urgently to Jesus. And as we realize what he has done for us, as we fall more and more in love with him, as we knit our souls with him, then this love and joy will overflow as we tell the world about our king, our king who loves our King who saves, our King who both deserves and has earned our allegiance. Let me pray. Father God, you hold us in debt and yet it is not a debt because you in your love have sent Jesus to save us, to save us from the threat of judgment and of hell. And Father, we rejoice and our hearts are filled with love as we realize what that means, that we do not have to face that, but that you have made a way for us to be with you and to be with you in a place 
which has not been wrecked and ravaged with sin, uh, a world uh, that is perfect, that operates the way it should. And Lord, we long for that day when your son Jesus comes back and makes all things right. But until that day, Father, instill in us a love for you that overflows, that overflows in our lives so that we might be able to boldly proclaim the good news of the gospel for those who don't know it, that they might come to know this same love of you. And Father, we pray all this in your son's name. Amen.